0: So, this is a podcast about travel, and I'm presenting you with a war memoir, right? With respect to that, and to the fact that I'm deviating from the core nature of the podcast in such an early episode, I can offer the following. While this episode may not be strictly about travel, it is definitely about an adventure. This episode is being released in recognition of the events which occurred at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, on December 7th, 1941. You see, my dad fought in World War II, in the Pacific. If you were to meet me, you would find that hard to believe. I'm too young to have had parents who were adults during the big one, but what can I say? My parents adopted me late in life, and yeah, I grew up with a World War II vet as a dad. My dad was a man who, at much too early an age, was ripped away from the arms of his family and straight from the back of its land, sent halfway around the world and dropped into a savage conflict, being told to kill or be killed all day every day for the next four years, and who survived that experience to come home and take his place as part of America's greatest generation. And he was marked by the war for the rest of his life, but he very rarely talked about it. And now I have been given and entrusted with the opportunity to present a memoir by another American serviceman who fought in the Pacific and who did have plenty to say. Regarding this man's experience in combat, I will offer just a few key words and phrases which describe the narrative which you are about to hear. Bataan Death March Slave Labor First B-29s ever seen Please note, This memoir is peppered with the use of a pejorative term for Japanese people. My dad also used this term until his very old age. I do not use this word, and as far as I can tell, it has almost passed from civilization. And please keep in mind the circumstances described in the memoir, and of course that such pejorative terms were undoubtedly used on both sides of the fence. I am honored to present the War Memoir of Hiram J. Sandberg. They've been wanting me to make this tape for a long time, so here goes. I just hope that I can remember everything and that I won't be too far off on the dates. In the fall of 1939, I was working in a lime quarry driving a dump truck, and with the blasting of the rock to bring it down out of the mountains, one of the men was killed, so this convinced me that I shouldn't be working there any longer and that I should join the Army, or the Navy, or the Army Air Force. Hitler had already gone into Poland, and I think England had declared war on Germany, so I knew it wouldn't be too long before the U.S. was at war, too. So I enlisted in the Army in October of 1940, and there was an opening at Fort Douglas in an aviation ordnance company, so I thought this was quite lucky, and that it was close to Salt Lake City and only 40 miles from home, so I thought this was the place for me. So I enlisted and stayed at Fort Douglas only about six or seven months, and... So in the late summer of 1941, we got orders to convoy all of our company and our equipment to San Francisco and to go overseas somewhere. They didn't tell us until we were outside the Golden Gate Bridge on a ship, and then they said we would be going to Hawaii and then on to the Philippine Islands. I remember the uneasy feeling I had going under the bridge and leaving the coast and knowing that I might never be coming back to the good old USA again. We were only out about three hours, and up came a storm. I was sure seasick, as were so many of the men, as were a lot of the ship's crew. I remember it lasted until almost noon the next day, so I didn't need anything for about twenty-four hours. When we arrived at Hawaii, they told us it would only be for a short stay, mainly to bring on supplies, so the next day we were on our way again. From then on, they told us the ship would be blacked out, after dark, because of submarines, submarines or that they just didn't want anyone to know of troops being transported anywhere outside the USA, I guess. It was about the sixth day after leaving the U.S. that we arrived at Guam, and I remember how hot it was there. The deck of the ship was metal, and it was real hot, so much so you didn't want to stand in one place very long. So then after about three more days, we came into the Philippine Islands, and I remember while passing between two islands that I was told over the speakers this was one of the deepest known depths. But it was six miles deep. When we got to Manila, it was almost sundown, and I remember how pretty the sunset was and the sun going down into the ocean, and how red it all was in the sky and everything. We were based at Nichols Field, an air base only about five miles outside Manila, and our job was to supply the bombers and other aircraft with bombs and ammunition. I had a machine shop truck, so I had some maintenance work to do also for the base. The two months we had there at the base before the war started was really enjoyable. And if I could relive any part of my life again, it would be those two months. There seemed to be so much to see, and only weekends and evenings to see the sights. I think one of the good things about being in the service there at Nichols Field was we didn't have to pull any KP. We had Filipino boys and some of the women come in to do the cooking, along with some of the uh, GI cooks, you know, base cooks. We had real good food. The fruit was real good. The papaya, the vegetables, and everything seemed to be well-prepared and in a family style. And also, the Filipino boys would come in and do our bunks up and shine our shoes, and they'd done our laundry. We'd have it sacked up, and they'd pick it up once a week and bring it back, and it would be all cleaned and pressed, and it was quite different from anything we'd had in the U.S., so this was really the enjoyable part, especially the food. Manila had several nightclubs, but we only went to one of them. However, the Santa Ana Cabaret. It was a a dime-a-dance sort of club, as I remember. And the orchestra was real good. The food was good. It was a restaurant-type nightclub. It was also recommended by the base commanding officer because of the location. Two, I guess, because it was a favorite spot for the American civilians and army and army air corps officers and their wives and also many of the Spanish and French who would spend their Saturday nights there, Manila too had a horse race track that you could do a lot of betting if you wanted, also dog racing and hi. High, lie. high lie is a type of sport that they have a basket-like thing that is curved and laced onto your hand, and they have this hard rubber ball and they throw it and catch it also along with this hard, long curved basket-like thing on their hand, and they heave it up against a big cement wall. It was, it was almost like a marble wall, and the Filipinos would bet on that too, but I didn't do any betting on any of it, mostly because I didn't have the money. I was sending $40 a month home to my mother, and I decided also to take a night class at the University of Manila, which was in the Walled City, a historical section of the city that would take in eight or ten city blocks. I only had three classes a week, two hours a night, which was a machine shop class, as you might have guessed. Another favorite pastime was going to the variety of clothing stores and hawk shops. Also the food markets, which was wide open, a lot of them right out onto the sidewalks. Most of the places had such an odor, one visit was enough. And Manila, too, had movie theaters. But they were kind of secondary, not the better places to go. Mostly because the movies were Filipino actors and actresses, and only once in a while did they have American movies. And I remember you had to pay more for the balcony than down below. The smoking was allowed on the first floor, but not the second floor, but it seemed funny. The smoke would always go clear up to the top of the balcony, so I couldn't see it made any difference. Nevertheless, it cost more to be up on the balcony than to be on the first floor, so most of the time we just went to the base theaters and saw the American movies they had there. About two weeks before the war started, they had us go through air raid alerts. This was every day, an hour or two each day which was assembling in our assigned squads and going to the different anti-aircraft bunkers around the perimeter of the base to make ready in case there was an air raid. Each bunker had sandbags stacked up about six feet high, and about 15 feet in diameter, I guess, but it only had one 30 caliber machine gun to the bunker. It seemed strange and hardly adequate to have just one machine gun, but there was five or six men with their rifles to each of the bunkers to shoot at the raiding planes. Then one morning, I thought, just after breakfast, about 7 o'clock in the morning, it did happen. It was December the 7th, 1941. The Japs did raid, and they hit our air base, and the things were really in a wild, confused situation, but we did have this bit of training, and we assembled into our respective squads and went out to those different bunkers, and the one I was located at was on that southeast end, and from that area we could see the Jap planes hitting the hangars and strafing the planes that were on the runways and around the hangars and so forth, and blowing everything up. They didn't come too close to our bunkers. Ours was a little too far out. But nevertheless, we shot at the planes, but they were a little too far away. The raid lasted for half an hour. Then we saw the bigger bombers, and they hit, I guess. It was down near the harbor of Manila. So then that was the extent of the raid that day. But the next day, they came again. This time it was about dinner time. And we didn't hardly think that there'd be a raid that soon. They struck again at the base, and a lot more people were killed. And in the confusion, there was a lot of equipment, our equipment too, that was shot up. So it's hard to remember those next two or three days, but I think we salvaged what we could from the air base. I remember a captain told me to take the trucks and go over to the hangar and find as much stock as I could, aluminum and steel and brass and so forth that was laying around at the base, you know, and pick it up from the machine shop truck for later use. So I did that and found quite a lot and came back. Our captain was given orders to get all of our equipment together and assemble down at Manila Harbor at the docks and load everything onto the barges and go from there over to the Bataan Peninsula, where they would carry on the fight. There were rumors to the fact that the Japanese had come in at two different landing points and were coming down toward Manila from the north. This was in the evening, along about six o'clock, as I remember. He had found out that the docks were loaded with other companies and personnel trying to move their equipment by water over to the Bataan Peninsula. He inquired as to whether the Japs had come in, got as far as San Fernando, that's a pretty good-sized city to the north of Manila. They couldn't tell him for sure, but that they were close to the city. So we decided that we'd (laughs) we'd take the chance and get all our equipment up on the road and go that way. And if we got into San Fernando, then the road would come back through that city and back into the Bataan Peninsula. It was maybe 50 miles up to the city of San Fernando and then back down toward the peninsula another 60 or 80 miles. It was dark by this time, and so we had to go blackout. All of our trucks were just a slit on the light of the headlights. We got up to the San Fernando, and we could hear the gunfire and some artillery and rifle fire, flares and so forth, going off into the city and lighting it up in different areas, but we did not get through the city and on the road and down onto the Bataan Peninsula at first. It was a bit of a struggle. We did eventually make it, though. The next morning, we went the distance we thought was a point we could stop and have some breakfast. Then we, sat, then we went down to the Bataan Peninsula. They had a commanding officer that was over the area. He said that this was the point where they'd make the first stand against the Japanese. That evening, I remember none of us got too much sleep, and just after we got through eating, we went out and into the jungle a ways. And I remember two or three of the fellows ran into a big python snake, so everybody had to go over and see the snake, and it was a big one, the first one I'd ever seen in the area. We'd heard on the radios and from communications that Manila had fallen and that MacArthur had gone across the bay and was on the Bataan Peninsula, and he had assumed complete command of the area there. So we being an ordnance aviation or a supply company. We were hardly infantry, nevertheless, we had our rifles, but our captain said that we would be behind the enemy lines, back of the lines three or four miles, in fact. The lines were established, and they had a lot of Filipino soldiers and Filipino scouts and American infantrymen and artillerymen and everyone that got out of the Manila area and Clark Field area and onto the peninsula. The lines held, and wave after wave, this was information we got from the lines. The Japs coming through, trying to break through the lines. We'd just riddle them down, mow them down with machine gun fire and so forth. They'd back off and hit us again the next morning and it would happen again. So the fighting people accounted for themselves. But then the Jap commanders brought in, brought in more fighting personnel and their bombers took a toll and so forth. From one line we would have to back farther to another one established and back down toward the end of the peninsula until it seemed that there was no longer anywhere to go other than Corregidor. Corregidor is an island out in the mouth of Manila Harbor, about three miles. So our company was assigned a section of the bay of the peninsula there to patrol and guard against a Jap invasion. Boats might come in behind us, behind the lines and so forth. And so we established there on the beaches, but then I got orders to take my machine shop truck and go to the Philippine Ordnance Depot to work for maintenance work and anything that was needed from the supply base there at the depot. So I took my machine shop truck and left my company. This was about two or three miles or more inland from the coast area where my company was there to protect and patrol on that section of the beach. So at this Philippine Ordnance Depot, I in the machine shop truck made hand mortars. They were just crude things. Just out of a pipe and a cap over the end with a firing pin in it, what they'd do is just hold a piece of the pipe with the soldier's left hand and drop the mortar down through the pipe and onto the firing pin and blast it that way. It was something the officers requested, and so we made a hundred or so, and they worked out all right. This area was deeper in the jungle, and you could look up through the trees, and the Jap bombers would go over in flights of nine, usually in triangular shape. They'd come over and bombed the peninsula. Everything was camouflaged. They couldn't see where the Filipino Ordnance Depot was, but this was one of their targets, and the personnel, the roads. Then they were hitting Corregidor too. One day, we'd heard that the lines had broken, and that the Filipino soldiers had thrown down their arms and run back because they'd been on real short rations for a long time. The sea rations had run out, and there was very little food for any of them, so they just kind of gave up. There wasn't any hope of getting any new supplies in, so the lines folded. Those that were able to get on boats and barges got over to Corregidor, and my company was one of those lucky companies, I guess you'd call it, got over to Corregidor. So I didn't hear anything about them. We got orders to burn up all of our equipment and then go over and assemble onto the eastern side of the peninsula, and there our Major General would surrender us to the Japanese. They blew up all the different magazines, storage buildings, with the bombs and flares and the incendiary bombs and the gasoline. I remember right outside my machine shop truck door, all I had to do was take one step and I was down into my foxhole. Whenever the big bombers would go over, all I did was jump out of the truck and down into the foxhole. You could look up and see the bombs dropping. It was something to see. When they would drop their bombs, it was beyond where you were looking. And you knew that the bombs were going... "'forward from where you were. "'Anyway, when they blew up the magazines, "'I got down into the foxhole, and it really shook the ground. "'I remember that very distinctly. "'Then when that was over with, I took a can of gas "'and threw it all over the machine shop truck, "'and inside and all over the tires, and set it afire. "'Then we all got together from the supply base "'and got on the road, and went over to this assembly area, "'where the Major General would surrender us. "'This was in the evening, about five or six o'clock.' The JAP commander stood up on a rock and gave a big victory announcement and so forth, and that we would form groups of 50 and start a march down the peninsula, back down around and up toward San Fernando again. We all laid down our rifles and our bandoliers with ammunition. I remember putting my wallet under a big rock. I knew that I'd never have any use for that again. We started marching. I was in the first hundred or so of the groups. I kept my helmet to use it as a wash basin or to keep the hot sun from baking down on my head. We were marching along. With each group of 50, we were five abreast marching. There would be maybe two Jap guards on either side. Sometimes there would be only one Jap guard on either side, but they always had their bayonets onto their rifles to guard against anyone escaping. This was in the evening we started marching. We marched until along about 9 o'clock. I know we marched for a couple of hours or more. The guards let us sit down along the side of the road and rest for a while. I got down along the side of the road in a kind of ditch and looked up and it was a real nice night and I thought, it's peaceful up there, but it sure is not peaceful down here where we are. Funny feeling to know it was all over with. So we rested there for about half an hour and we always had our canteens and if you had some water you could drink all right. We marched that evening until the next morning and we came to a little town There was a schoolhouse there. We stopped, and they had this little kitchen set up with pots of steamed rice, and they gave us some rice. We had plenty of water then. We were there for an hour, rested up pretty well, and then they started us walking and marching again. We passed one town by the name of Marvellus, down on the very tip of the peninsula, and if I remember, this little submarine base was there. But it had been all bombed out, and there was nothing much left of the little town. We marched on through there, and everyone was hoping to get some water, because we had recently run out. Finally, they let us stop at a spring and get a short rest. It was a while there that one of the Jap guards spotted my class ring, my gold ring, and he took it off my finger. I still had my helmet, and he banged me on the head with the butt of his rifle and says, No, you can't keep your helmet. So he took that off and threw it down. I remember at the spring it seemed like everybody wanted the water. You could only get one or two canteens under the well at the same time, so consequently there wasn't too many who got very much to drink. But along the way, we passed these sugar cane fields, and if there wasn't a guard along with you, why, you could slip out. Grab two or three stalks of sugar cane and bring it back in, and that helped us a lot, made it so you wasn't quite so hungry or thirsty. We hiked or marched that day until in the afternoon, and we stopped in another spot, and they had quite a few Jap trucks that had stopped there on their way back up to San Fernando, I guess. They had unloaded their equipment down on the closest point to Corregidor, their guns, their field pieces, their supplies, their food, all stuff like that. They were empty and on their way back to the supply base for more. They beckoned to us, a few of us who were standing over there and we didn't know what they wanted, but anyway there was thirty of us and we went over there and they told us to get on get on the trucks. So we loaded all on the trucks and they hauled us for about thirty miles. When we got to this little town they had us get off and start loading all of the supplies, ammunition and food and stuff on their trucks. They went on back down the peninsula opposite Corregidor for their invasion, or their artillery shelling of Corregidor from the peninsula. After the trucks left, we had to start marching again, and we marched at night, and they gave us some more rice, and this time they gave us some seaweed, and it went along with it with some seasoned pickles. That tasted pretty good, so we thought, well, we're doing pretty good. We marched again for a while and came to another schoolhouse, kind of a small wall and fence around it, and they had us stay there that night. The next day we marched two nights and two-and-a-half days if I remember right, so we marched the next day until about four o'clock in the afternoon, and we came to this town, and they had a stop, and they loaded us onto some trucks, and into a little railroad depot, and then they put us in these boxcars, and they told us that we'd go to our first camp. This was one way I was quite lucky. I not only had a couple of rides in the trucks, but also they moved us in these boxcars to this Camp O'Donnell, O'Donnell was a real small town outside of the city. They had us march from there. Got off the trucks, and from there we marched ways, out a couple of miles, into this Camp O'Donnell, a fenced-in area, and this was our first camp. From there we could see the other different groups coming in the next day, and the day after that. Those that came in later were the worst off. They were the slowest, and the worst off physically. A lot of these men were carrying others that couldn't march or walk too well. It was kind of a pitiful sight. A lot had bandages on their heads and around their arms and places like that, so this Camp O'Donnell, it was a bamboo-built barracks-like thing, and they were quite big. There were two floors all made out of bamboo. This was our first camp, one of the poorest ones because it didn't have anything set up for the prisoners. They did have water, but not too much of that. Their rice wasn't too good. They didn't have anything to go with the rice, fish or anything. We stayed there about two or three weeks, and the longer the time went on, the worse the people seemed to get. Soldiers became quite discouraged. I remember a fellow I stayed pretty much with from southern Utah. He got yellow jaundice. He didn't want to go over to the hospital side. I told him he had to. The only place he could get any kind of help was there. So he says, well, everybody that goes there, they don't come out alive, so I might as well just go die anyway. I told him he had to get a little fight, and he had to come out alive, and he had to keep it going regardless of what. Things will get better. But he went over, and he did die after just a few days. I never did. Then I was moved out of that camp to a place called Cabanatuan. Cabanatuan was a much bigger and better camp, and they fed us three times a day. It was steamed rice, and twice a week we had a few vegetables. They'd make it into a soup, and so that was quite good. Then they allowed us to go out once or twice a week and go on the outside of the camp area and pull down a lot of the tall grass that was along the fence and along the roads and around the camp. This was so they could patrol the perimeter of the camp with their guards. So it was good to get out and work a little bit. I remember the little stream of water that went through one part of the camp. They allowed us to go there and dip up some water. We could wash and wash our clothes a little bit if we had some soap. They issued a little bit of soap, enough to keep us in clean clothes, just a bit. One day our American officers got everyone together, and they said they were authorized a hundred men and one or two officers to go out to a small town and rebuild a bridge that had been blown down during the war by our American soldiers in retreat. They had blown up this bridge that crossed a river, and the Japanese wanted to rebuild this bridge. They would allow men to volunteer, those who thought they were in good enough shape. They told us it would be hard work. I thought, well, I'm in pretty good shape. I'll put my name in, and I did get to go. One day they got everybody together and they marched us for about three hours into the small town. I think the name of it was Tarlac. They allowed us to stay in this dilapidated old building. It had part of a barbed wire fence around it, and then they told us we'd stay and work during the day and come back that evening. We'd have time to cook a little rice and so forth. There was one Jap officer and four guards, and because they only had the four guards and not much of a fence around the city, they told us no one should try to escape, that if anyone did try to escape, ten men and one officer would be shot. So no one tried to escape for a month or so, but one night when we came back from working on the bridge, they'd have a roll call. Along about six o'clock, one of the men was missing. He was one that had stayed there in camp, in the sick Bay area, because he had malaria. The Japanese had everybody draw out a number, and ten of those men would be shot, and one officer would be shot if they didn't find the man. They sent out a detail and a couple of guards, and they did find the guy and brought him back, and he was kind of out of his head with the malaria he had. I remember this sick bay part of the building. There was this little pan they kept in the middle of the room, and it had this bark. It was a quinine bark off a quinine tree. They would put a little water with this bark, and anyone who needed quinine for the malaria why they would take a teaspoon or so of this water. That was about the extent of what they could do for the people who got sick. Anyway, it was a relief when this guy got back, or when they dragged this guy back. So we continued on with the bridge, and after three months, we got it built. During that latter part, why I got diarrhea quite bad and had to stay away from my job for a few days, I don't remember what I did for the diarrhea. A lot of the time, they would take rice and cook it into almost a charcoal-like consistency and they would eat that and it was supposed to help that. There was a lot of malaria and dysentery among the men too. They would wear themselves down from working on the bridge and so a lot of them they had to put on trucks and bring back to the camp after the bridge detail was finished. We stayed in Cabana for I don't know how long maybe two or three months after that. Then two or three JAP officers came into the camp and they had everybody line up And take any information as to what they did before the war, or before they went into the service, like what they did in civilian life as a trade, or what they did when they got out of high school, or what their line of work was. They told us that they were moving a lot of men out of the camp into Japan, those that were in fair physical shape, and so we were kind of looking forward to that. So one day they had everyone line up and count off, and they marched us all down to the town and loaded us all on boxcars, and from there took us down to Manila, to the harbor and they loaded us onto this big troop transport. We headed out toward Japan. We traveled by sea for two or three days and we got into Okinawa and they stopped in the harbor and we brought on some supplies and they headed out for Japan and after three or four hours I guess we were only out at sea for a short while. They turned around and came back to the harbor. They told us there was a submarine scare. They waited for another ship to go along with us and so we all sat and went out again, north toward Japan. Aboard the ship, a lot of the men got sick, a lot of diarrhea and dysentery. They made up a makeshift men's room, or latrine, they called them both, on the forward part of the ship and the aft part of the ship. Even those didn't take care of those that had the diarrhea. They were just hanging their fannies over the sides of the deck. It was kind of a pitiful situation. The Japanese would not go below decks. The stench was terrible. I remember there was a body of one of the Americans left under a gangway stairs. The body had been left to bloat and rot. We got up toward Japan, and the one ship separated. They went toward Japan and told us over the loudspeaker we were going on to Korea. (laughs) We entered the harbor of Korea at Pusan. That was the name of it, a little harbor. They had everyone line up and count off, and they checked everybody over. Those that were in the best physical shape were sent up into Manchuria. But there were maybe 100 or 150 who just had to stay in Pusan. They were in the worst physical shape. They had a lot of different sicknesses. Malnutrition, dysentery, the diarrhea, malaria, and so forth. So I had to stay in this camp at this city there in Korea. Then this night I was the worst off. I got pneumonia this one time. I lost a lot of weight. I got over it and then they sent us up two, into Mukden, Manchuria, where the rest of the men had been sent. I remember at this camp in Korea, this fellow I bunked right alongside was dead one morning. I shook him to tell him the food was coming around, but he didn't move, and I called the corpsman, and they had found he died during the night. He had died of diphtheria. I didn't get it, so I must have been immune to that disease, but this was one of the worst times of my stays at the different camps because of the cold. It was real cold. It was November, as I recall. The cold north winds would come in and made it seem like it was 20 below Fahrenheit where we had just come out of the tropics and had to go up there where it was so cold. We got into Mukden, Manchuria. and They told us we'd be at the camp for a couple of months until they got this big camp made up for us and the facilities would be a lot better and the men would do better because of the factory where they would have time to work and they would have work and if they worked, they would get better food. We stayed at this camp, and we were only allowed one bucket of coal per barracks per day, and it wasn't enough to keep everyone warm. It was down ten below, twenty below Fahrenheit, and it seemed so cold, and nobody could go outside of the barracks. Most of the time, we just stayed covered up in our bunks. Then one day they told us we were all going to the new camp. It wasn't very far. It was on the other side of Mukden, and Mukden was not quite as big as San Francisco but it was a good-sized city. A lot of factories around. We got to the camp, and it was a new one they'd built, just especially for prisoners of war. They had a big brick wall all around it, and they had three high-tension wires above the brick wall. The wall was about 12 feet high, I think. Inside the camp, there were three big barracks, and each barracks had two floors, and it was quite nice. They had straddled trench toilet facilities and they told us the next day we would march over to the factory and work. That was about half a mile away, maybe about a mile, I guess, and the name of the factory was MKK. They built machine tools. One of the factories built parts for aircraft, the wings and the parts of the aircraft, but we were not allowed anywhere around that one. That was fenced off, and only the Japanese and Manchurians worked in that one. Another time there at Mugden, Manchuria, before the American bombers hit, There was a shakedown of all the different barracks. The guards just came through and they went through everybody's belongings. They wanted to find out if they had knives or anything. One of the men, I remember, a tall, lanky Marine, had kept an American flag with him all the time, and they found this flag with his belongings there at his bunk. They took him out, and he was gone for several hours. Then he came back. He said they just wanted to find out why he'd kept an American flag all this time. He was honest. He says he give them the reasons for it. It was good enough. He thought he was in deep trouble, but apparently it wasn't that bad at all. In thinking back, the winters were really the worst to stand. It was 40 below several days, the winter of 1943 to 1944. We had pretty warm clothing, and everybody wore beards because they didn't have any razors, any means of shaving. So that helped, but the frost of your breath would freeze on your beard. It was... Quite odd to see all this, at times, coming in from the factory. First, I worked in the southernmost factory, the foundry area. Our job was to carry the coal and shovel it into the big furnaces that melted and heated up big castings. And they drop-forged a lot of them into different shapes for other parts of the factory. I was there for a month or six weeks, and then they moved us down to another part of the factory where they actually had the machines doing the machine work. They worked us along with some of the Manchurians and some of the other Japanese. I was a helper with one of the Japanese ex-soldiers. I'd have to help him onto the machines with the big castings to be milled and machined down into different machines they built. One evening we were in camp, and each time we'd go to the factory, they'd count us off. Everybody had to line up and be counted off to make sure there was a good, accurate count. After coming back to the camp, we'd be counted off again to make sure everyone was accounted for, that no one was back over at the factory, left or something. I remember one night you could see the sky lit up for a little bit. And there was a fire of some kind, and the Jap guards got everybody out of the buildings. And we had to be counted off. All the American officers had to be accounted for, and they stood us out there for a long time. Finally, they allowed us to go back into the barracks. They told us that one part of the factory was on fire, and that one of the G.I.s had started the fire. But come to find out, the next day, it was one of the Manchurians that worked down there during the night. He'd got cold, and he laid down on this floor furnace and got his coattail down into the hot flame, and it caught on fire. And when it woke him up, and he found himself ablaze, he ran over and wrapped himself up in one of the big blackout curtains at the factory window to smother the flames. It caught on fire and up into the wood superstructure of the factory, and so the factory was caught on fire that way. It was a lively affair there for a while. We didn't quite know what was going on. You know, there, there was a time up in Manchuria that I meant to recollect for you and forgot. I... At the time, that Doolittle little raid was going on with the bombing raid that hit Tokyo, it was a little rough on the G.I.s there at the camp. The Jap guards were a lot meaner. They put more guards around, and they always had their bayonets fixed. I remember there was one evening I went out after dark for a barrel of hot water over at the kitchen, and the guard caught me. You're not supposed to go out of the barracks after dark, you know. This time I thought I'd take a chance. I went over to the kitchen for hot water, and on the way back, the guard caught me. This was an offense, and I had to go to solitary confinement for a couple of days. This is one of the things I meant to relate about being up there. Then after we'd been in for about a year, we got Red Cross packages, and that seemed real good. And during that time, too, they allowed us to have an English newspaper come in once a week. Once a week, they'd allow this paper to come in. It was the Nippon Times was the name of it. They'd tell in the paper how the war was going on. That's about all it was, war news and propaganda to how the war was going, and naval battles. It was depressing for us to read it, but it was, nevertheless, something for us to read. Another thing that happened toward the end of our stay up in Manchuria was, we didn't go to the factory one day. Everybody wondered why. Then we could hear air raid sirens going off all over the city. Soon we could see these bombers go over, and we knew that they were American planes because there was only one plane that big in the world, and it was American. The bombs hit around our camp, and none of them hit the camp this particular time. They hit factories and warehouses and so forth around not too far from the camp, and then after a couple of days, it was after dark, they bombed again, and this time, they hit our camp. When they got the alert and the sirens started blasting, the Japs allowed us to go out of the buildings and lay on the ground, One of the bombs hit one of the buildings, the latrine, and there was crap thrown everywhere. One of the bombs hit out among the compound where the men were lying. Two or three were killed. Several were injured. One soldier who survived had a metal plate put in his head to repair the wound from the bomb shrapnel. The wound was on the front right side of his forehead. That was kind of a bad time. I don't remember exactly, but it seems like 100 or 200 yards from where I was laying. So I was lucky there. We didn't go to the factory the next day. We got to thinking that something was wrong. Maybe the Americans had dropped parachute troops or something. Anyway, we could hear and see, too, at night, the artillery from the north where the Russians had entered the war. We got this information from some of the Japanese guards. We could see the flares and the skies light up from the artillery. They were not too far from the city. We had to stay in the camp there for about a week. And then one day we saw these planes come over and they dropped some parachute people out. In the afternoon, the Japanese were all pulled out, and none of them were around. We wondered, well, something's gone wrong. Our American officer, he was the commander of our command, got everybody together and said that these parachute people that dropped from a couple of planes were there to contact any prisoner of war camps that were there in that area. They had contacted the Japanese officers and camp commander and so forth back at our camp, and that we were to be released soon. Before this happened, we talked to the Japanese guards and said, Well, what's going to happen? We're not going to work. What happens when the Russians come to the city? He said he thought they'd turn their artillery onto the camp, and so we'd go up with the camp. They wouldn't allow us to be taken by the Russians. The next day, there wasn't any guards around. And the Russians had come in, and they had contacted our American commander, and it wouldn't be long before we was released. Before they allowed us to leave the camp to go down to the railroad depot, they opened up the gates, and we could come and go as we wanted. I remember one afternoon they put on a show. They had their Russian soldiers there with musical instruments. They had dancing Cossacks. They built a kind of stage-like affair, and they put on quite a show. It was real good. A little bit before this, six or eight months before the end of the war, they allowed mail to come in from home. So I did get a couple of cards and letters from home. One of them had stated from my sister Donna that my dad had died just a short time before the war had started down in the Philippines. But at least I found everything, and that my mother was okay. We were to go down to the railroad depot this particular day, and our American officers were there in charge. They took us down and they had us a train that we all got into. Railroad cars, and it took us down by railroad, down to the southern part, and the harbor at the lower part of Manchuria. There we boarded an American hospital ship and headed down toward the Philippines. We got down to Okinawa along into the late afternoon, and we had pulled into the harbor and they told us we couldn't stay, and that there was a typhoon coming that way, and that all ships that were able to move out were to move out of the harbor. So we pulled back out of the harbor and went toward the Chinese coast. The typhoon was quite bad. It was tossing the ship around. The waves were real high. The next morning, about 7 o'clock in the morning, there was a big blast. It shook the ship, and we didn't know what had gone wrong. I ran up onto the top deck. The typhoon had subsided quite a bit. The waves wasn't quite so high. Then they told us that they'd hit a floating mine the B 29s had dropped to stop some of the Japanese ships. We were without power for quite a while, and then they started up an auxiliary power plant. They had barricaded and blocked off the bulkheads down in the engine rooms where the mine had hit, so it seemed it would be okay. But he didn't have power in the ship, so he says that we'd be headed back toward Okinawa. Another ship tied on with a long rope and started towing us. They'd radio again to Okinawa, and a tugboat would come out and tie another rope on. We got pulled about twice the speed. This other ship had pulled us. And so when we got into the harbor... A diver had gone down, and you could see looking over the side of the ship the big hole that was blasted there. The divers went down and into the hole from the outside and found that several men that had been there in the engine room part had been washed out from the typhoon into the heavy seas. They took us off the ship into an American barracks, and they fed us real good. Some had to stay and get on another ship and go to the Philippines, but I, with several others, got on a truck and went down to an air base. They put us aboard several B-24s, and they flew us down to Manila. So again, we were back in Manila. The city was a little different from the bombings, and the harbor had a lot of damage. The walled city of Manila was damaged real bad. The big wall around it was blown up in a lot of different areas. They boarded us on another American ship, and we started to come back to the U.S. It was several days again before we got to Hawaii, but... I didn't get seasick this time. On the way back, I didn't get seasick at all. We got to Hawaii, and then everything was so much better. We got a lot of good care. We got doctors that checked us over several times. So then we got back to the good old USA. First from the docks in Frisco, we went to a general hospital outside the city a ways. They had us there as kind of a rehabilitation to check us over physically and build us back up. We were only there for a couple of weeks, and they moved us down to Los Angeles to a facility there. They had us in a hospital that was a lot better than the one in Frisco. They had better daycare. We could go to school during the day for a couple or three hours if we wanted. We could take bus sightseeing tours, anything we wanted in that respect. They had different things lined up for us each day. We could take our choice as to what we wanted to do. So it was sure good to have such care again. I'd lost a lot of weight, but I was gaining quite fast. After about three or four weeks down at Los Angeles Hospital, I got a furlough and was allowed to come home. I got a bus ride and came up and got home and was allowed to stay home for a week or so, and then I went back. I think that I only stayed at the hospital there again for a couple of weeks. They discharged most of the men. I was to come back to Fort Douglas. I think I stayed for a month or two. It was there I got my discharge. So that about ends my tour of duty over there. I hope I haven't forgotten too much of it.